0: Hello and welcome to Rare Nautical Reads, with me Chris Stammer-Major. In this episode we're continuing the Bombard story by Dr. Alain Bombard, translated by Brian Connell, and we're on Chapter 6. Chapter 6. Capsize. The city Farouk steamed rapidly away, and I hope that her captain will never have to make any experiments himself. Little did we realise what a cargo of mocking laughter, calumny and even insult that ship carried off to rebound on our unlucky heads during the coming months. Jack gave vent to his fury at the French captain's lack of courtesy and I could only second his remarks. However, our friends and families would be reassured. We had resisted the temptation to transfer on board and our voyage continued. We knew again the exquisite pleasure of drinking fresh water, and had a high time exploring the sack of provisions. It contained sea biscuit, four tins of bully beef, and one of condensed milk. The barometer had not lied. In spite of the brilliant sun, the wind had freshened again, but this time from the right direction. It was driving us south-southwest, straight for Menorca. At midday, on Sunday 8th of June, the summit of Mount Toro appeared again on the horizon, much more clearly defined than eight days earlier. But were we going to be able to land this time? The Balearic Archipelago consists of six islands, of which the three largest are Majorca, Minorca, and Ibiza. Minorca is the most easterly of them, and its capital is Mahon, on the southern part of its east coast, famous for a battle fought there by the Duc de Richelieu, and also for the delicacy we call mayonnaise, originally mayonnaise, We could choose between Mahon and the little port of Ciudadela on the west coast. It is quite impossible to land on the north coast, which is composed entirely of steep cliffs and is the site of many shipwrecks, the best known being perhaps that of the General Chansey in 1910. We, therefore, had to clear in one way or another. We steered first for the north-eastern point of the island, hoping to make Mahon during the night. But the wind played as false, and we drifted further to the west, finding ourselves not more than a few cable lengths off the north coast by morning. There was little enough sign of the flower-bedecked inlets conjured up by the name Balearics. The coastal resorts were all at the southern end. For three interminable days, we drifted past the cliffs without any hope of landing. We were extremely close, and I had the cine camera working overtime, if the wind blew us offshore again, we would be able to prove we had been there. During the course of Monday, we drifted slowly towards the northwestern point of the island. We were so close that I could see a rabbit run across one of the stretches of green. Hunger was no longer a problem, and I was out fishing underwater every day, bringing in a rich harvest during our passage along the coast and during the whole of our stay, I spent an hour with the harpoon gun every day, never bringing back less than 15 pounds of fish. We were now in a hurry to make harbour. The Mediterranean voyage seemed to have no great point anymore and we wanted to be shipped as soon as possible to Malaga or Tangier or somewhere else close to the Straits of Gibraltar. We would then be in a position to start our crossing of the Atlantic. Tuesday the 10th, found us at sunset a few score yards off the northwestern point. The gentle breeze which had brought us thus far died right down just as we were rounding Cape Menorca. There was not a single bay or inlet in which we could anchor, and to make things worse, the land wind started to carry us out to sea again. It looked as if Menorca was going to disappear below the horizon. Were we really going to start the vicious circle of the Gulf of Valencia again? We tried to stop our drift with the sea anchor but the current carried us to the north as well and by the morning of Wednesday 11th June, the 18th day of our voyage, we woke up to see with despair that we were 15 miles off the coast on which we longed to land. Then our spirits rose again, a little sea breeze carried us in once more towards Cape Menorca. Once we had rounded it, we knew that Chiu was only about a mile to the south, At about ten o'clock, to cheer us up still further, we saw a dozen fishing smacks coming up the coast, and then dispersing in all directions. None of them seemed to notice us, but one of them went to lift its lobster pots to our north-east. It could not fail to meet us on the way back, and we intended to ask for a tow into the harbour. In the meantime, we had not been sighted, and we had to concentrate on rounding the cape. Just as we thought we had made it, the wind abandoned us again. It looked as though we would have to go through the whole weary round once more, but fortunately a fishing boat came up to us, passed us a tow, and in less than ten minutes as if in a dream we made our entry into the little port which, in a matter of minutes, was to adopt and seduce us. The attractions were to prove dangerous for my companion who, although a model of courage, endurance and even temperament at sea, was unable to resist the temptations of the shore our arrival soon attracted most of the population. Waiting for us on the mole was a Spanish officer with an extremely intelligent face, no longer young. As soon as we clambered ashore, he came up to me, supported as I was on my shaky legs by some friendly spectators and said, Are you French? Yes. Where are you from? From France. With that, he said, looking at the heretic? Yes. From which port? Monte Carlo. "'Sir, do you expect me to believe that?' I gave him a newspaper cutting with an account our intended departure. Then, looking at our little flag, this splendid old officer took a step back, saluted and said, "'Eh bien, messieurs, vive la France!' Deeply touched, I asked him to note that the seals on our emergency food stocks were unbroken. It was all a glorious contrast to the preceding 48 hours. Our first task was to send off telegrams to our families. Then we each drank a huge glass of iced beer, which tasted like the nectar of the gods, and was served in a little cafe whose proprietress took a maternal interest in us during the whole of our stay. It felt like being transported to Fairyland. Our first guides became our firm friends and showed us all the treasures and charms of their little town. Guillemo is one I still think of, who took us into homes with wonderful souvenirs of Moorish, French, British and Spanish conquerors, with magnificent Queen Anne furniture, Spanish coats of arms and superb Flemish manuscripts. On the first day he said to me, this house is yours, a phrase which, in a man of his race, means what it says. Then there was Augustine, who introduced me to typical Menorcan dishes, particularly Sobrasada, which is still such a delicious memory, and Fernando and Garcia, who showed me the little inlets where sea perch, mullet, and bass gave back confidence to a fisherman too long unsuccessful. Even my love of music was catered for. Guillermo took me on the following Sunday to meet a Menorcan composer, who had staying with him the superb Majorcan pianist Mas Porcel, a pupil of Alfred Cortot who filled my head again with the wonders of Bach, de Falla, Schumann and Debussy. Never has it been so difficult for me to leave any place. However, the next day, assisted by our fishermen friends and encouraged by Ayondante Militar de Marina Manuel Despullo, the officer who had received us so charmingly on our arrival, we left this enchanting little port amidst the applause of its inhabitants. A sardine boat towed us about five miles out to sea in the direction of Alcudia. The operation was now becoming familiar. After about half an hour, the tow was dropped and we were alone again. This time, we did not have far to go. Our next destination was Miorca about 40 miles away. And with luck, we should be there in the early hours of the next morning. The chief problem was to avoid being carried to the north. No easy matter as our leeboards, indifferently mounted and used without much skill, were of little use, and the wind was blowing from the southeast. Nevertheless, everything went well, and on the morning of Tuesday the 17th, we found ourselves right on course. We passed several sardine boats which greeted us in a friendly fashion, and we reaccustomed ourselves very quickly to life on board the heretic, in spite of our spell on land. We had taken some food with us, as there seemed no point in adhering to our Spartan regimen during such a short passage, and we wanted to keep the emergency stocks intact for the Atlantic. At about six o'clock, Menorca disappeared below the horizon to the east, and the majestic peaks of Miorca stood out against the setting sun. Everything was going splendidly, and we soon picked up the lights of Alcudia at a distance of about five miles. Jack, who was at the tiller, broke the silence. In his usual calm fashion, he said, "Alan, we are drifting to the north and quickly at that. The wind has veered due south. I don't like it at all. These north and south winds cause bad storms in the straits here. However, we'll try and make it. The rocky escarpments of Mallorca slid away from us. Was it back to the Gulf of Valencia again? There was only one solution. The sea anchor. What an infuriating sea, we thought would we never get out of it and into a region of regular winds? I swore that I would never sail the Mediterranean again without an auxiliary motor. We were faced by another night of inactivity, with no idea of what the morrow might bring. We were getting heartily sick of the Mediterranean. We were both up at crack of dawn on the 18th, looking round apprehensively to find out where we were. The wind had dropped, but we saw with despair that we were in about the same position as we had been on Tuesday the 10th at the same time, but perhaps a little further out, 20 miles to the northeast of the northwestern point of Minorca. rounding the Cape, crossing the Straits. We had to go through the whole thing again. To crown our misfortunes, the wind sprang up from the north and rapidly freshened to gale force. In the open sea, out of reach of the coasts, We would have had nothing to worry about but with rocks and cliffs in the offing it was extremely dangerous there was only one thing to do make for tudadella and wait for the weather to calm down there was no time to waste the wind had become very strong but in about four hours we were close to land again the sea was very rough and it was clearly impossible to round the fatal cape as we were turning east to look for some sort of shelter we met a fishing boat which passed as a tow Conditions were by no means good. With each wave, the toe slackened and then tightened again with a violent twang. It was not so bad at heading into the waves, but Jack did not hide his disquiet. Sometime we have to turn beam on to round the point, he said. He spoke not a moment too soon. The toe tightened just as we were on the crest of a wave, which then broke on us. In a flash, the heretic had turned turtle and we were in the water. I was swimming strongly when I heard Jack shout, "'The rope! Alan, the rope!' I looked round for a length of line to throw him, although in some surprise because he was a good swimmer. Then he explained, "'There's a rope round my legs! I can't swim!' Fortunately, the fishing boat had come round and took us aboard. While I was still half in the water, I shouted, "'Jack, we are going on, aren't we?' And he replied with true British calm, "'Of course!' What A splendid fellow he was. At sea, there was no one to beat him." It was a pity that now and again we had to stop somewhere. The heretic looked like a tortoise turned over on its back. Every now and again various objects floated out of the tent which still retained them. Braving the danger which increased every minute of being blown onto the coast, the Spanish fishermen circled round the wreck. Every time something floated to the surface, I dived in to rescue as much as possible. First of all came the sail, then the watertight bags, Heaven be praised, the exposed films were saved. Then came more reels of film, the rudder, oars, the sleeping bags. Gone for good were the camera and cine camera, the radio set, the compass and the binoculars. The mast was broken and the tent torn. We entered Tudadela with the heretic in tow and our tails between our legs. What had happened? We had been towed too fast in a position neither our sail nor our sea anchor allowed us to take up combination of wind, direction of tow, and a maliciously breaking wave had been sufficient to capsize the dinghy. We had learnt one lesson for all time, never to drift, even with a favourable wind, without streaming the sea anchor and taking the waves off the bow. But our lives were saved, the boat was intact, and our will to go on unaffected. That was the chief thing. Well, that's the end of today's chapter and we'll continue the story tomorrow.